All right, good morning, guys. My name is Steve, and uh, I'm lead pastor. Welcome. Uh, this morning, we get to do uh, something fun. I, I love our celebration weekends, so celebration Sunday. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and ask the grapples to come on up, and I'll explain to you what's going on. On a celebration Sunday, what we try to do is, is pull back the curtain and give you a glimpse at um, some of the leaders that are laboring in the background in ways that you don't necessarily see, but you feel the effects of. Like, like these are folks that are, that are carrying a tremendous amount of weight, doing a lot of work, um, so that you might be blessed. And so you experience the blessing of their labor, but you often don't know who's actually doing the labor and, and who's doing the work. And so this morning, I just want to take an opportunity to celebrate the grapples. Um, and, uh, and, and let me tell you a little bit about who they are. Uh, this is Joe and, and Becky and, um, and their kids, Fletcher and Sophia and Evelyn and Charlotte. And um, you guys say hi to the grapples. You guys say hi, kids. There you go. Yeah, there we go. Uh, so let me explain to you who these guys are. Joe came, I mean, Joe and I met, I think last service figured out it was like 2014, which was like a millennia ago. And, um, and we were talking at that stage, he was working at, a, at another church, and, and we were talking about potentially planting a church in Alton, which is his passion. They live in Alton, they love Alton. And of course, that coincides with, with our dreams and hopes. And so we're like, hey man, this dovetails really well. And he came to me and he's like, um, I would love to move forward in church planting. Would you walk with me? Would you, would you coach me and help me and, and, uh, and help me just discern God's leading in my life? Um, and I said, absolutely, as long as that's what you're actually saying, because I can make no guarantees about the outcome. Um, I can't guarantee we're going to plant a church. What I can guarantee is we'll try to be faithful in helping you discern God's call. Um, and that walk has been um, interesting. Um, it has definitely thrown us some curveballs. Uh, as we have sought to move forward. And, and, and as a result, um, you know, God has, has uh, kind of made some things clear that, that changed the vision a little bit, and, and at least the timing, if not the outcome. We don't know. And, and, and as a result, uh, it's, been, it's been some challenging stuff. And, and this is what I want to say. Like, just, just I want to make it really clear that, that um, one of the things that, that Joe has um, just impressed me with, and honestly his faith has really encouraged me with, is just his humility in in these changing seasons you guys it is incredibly hard when you have a vision for your life and you're like awesome i think this is god's vision for my life and then all of a sudden god starts showing up and saying not quite right we we have this we have a way of doing it right you get a picture and and it's like god reveals this and god reveals this god reveals this And what we do is we want to paint in the rest of the picture and say god revealed this whole thing to us and then god comes and it's like an etch-a-sketch he shakes it and, and he's like no these things are still sure but the rest of it's gone and and we're going to start over that's a really like that that shakes you and uh and the only strength we have as followers of christ is humility and joe has been absolutely uh, the demonstration of humility. He has again and again humbled himself and just said, whatever the Lord wants me to do, that's what I'll do. Whatever the Lord calls me to go, that's where I'll go. And Becky has been um, right there and, and as they have wrestled with this together. Um, and it's been incredibly encouraging to me to see you guys walk through this with such integrity. And, and so the end result, what's happening now is, is after we prayed and wrestled and talked about how we were supposed to be partnering together, um, we decided we were going to go through a season of working together 
in leadership, and so he, he's actually become um, our director of, of our family ministries. He is, he is over Trailhead Kids and now over Trailhead Students, and those of you who are working down there already have probably felt some of the effects of some of the leadership down there. Um, he is leading with integrity, and he is leading with, with uh, creativity, and we're really excited um, because all of our kids are being blessed as you guys are leading out in this way. Um, but here's the thing. That is, that is a blessing to us um, and I want to give you a glimpse of, of, you know, some of the generosity that the gospel brings. Um, when we were having this discussion, I was like, man, one of the great needs we have is for someone to be dedicated to the area of family ministry, but we're not at a place yet where we can afford to hire a full-time um, family minister. And so Joe and Becky agreed to fundraise. Um, they went through the process of humbling themselves and, and moving out and asking for money, and, and uh, that's a fun process. Um, but it is a leadership process. It's a process of casting vision over and over and over again. And, and, um, and God is blessed. And so he raised his own salary so that he could come and serve you. Um, and, and so that this church might be blessed. And um, so we are incredibly grateful uh, for their example of humility and for their service of love. Um, and we have all been blessed. Let's, let's just say thank you um, to the Grapples. We... Uh, Joe, we, we got you some flowers. Yeah, I'm glad you like those. Becky, we got you a trip to the City Museum. Um, and, uh, and so we hope that you guys enjoy a fun time romping around one of St. Louis's treasures. Watch your head. Um, I had four staples right here. Yeah, I got scalped. Um, and it was worth it. It was worth it. The monstrosity. Oh, man, the City Museum. Anyway, uh, watch your head. You're taller than I am. Um, Yes. Well, she's been, this is our third time. This is our third service. She's like, this is, we've been here before, right? You guys have been great. You have done great. High fives. You have done great every single time. Good job. Yes. Yes. All right. Let me pray for these guys. You guys pray with me. Father, I thank you for the Garoppolo family. I thank you, Lord, for the way you have led our stories to be intertwined. Um, man, I didn't know Joe. And, um, and what a privilege it is that, Spirit, you arranged for us to, to cross paths, to start having conversations, to start building relationship, and then start building trust, and, uh, and Lord, allowing us to now be co-laborers working together um, on your mission, that the gospel might move forward, that people might be blessed by the work that you've done. Man, what a privilege it is to have a partner um, who leads me. Um, in humility and in service. And so, Father, I pray that you will richly bless this family and continue to bless the ministry that they lead. Um, Help them, Lord, to find deep joy in the service and help others to be profoundly blessed as a result. Lord, bless them in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys, thank you. All right. Clap them out. All right, you guys, grab your Bibles. We're going over to Jonah chapter 1. We are continuing our series through the book of Jonah. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. In our Bibles, we're going over to Jonah 1, which is page 774. In our Bibles, Jonah chapter 1. Um, if you didn't pick up a study book yet, I really encourage you to do so. They are out, you, I know you saw it. Uh, it is a really colorful display out in the lobby. We designed those study books to help equip you to enter into this study with us. Um, we have a whole team of people that have been working for months in order to produce this. Uh, it isn't just generic. We produced it for us, and it was by us. And, and, um, and there are multiple pieces. First, it's, a, it's an inductive study. <laughs> 
All right, slow my tongue down. Inductive Bible study, which basically means it helps you move into observational Bible study on your own before the sermon ever takes place, to get you into the Word before you show up, um, just observing and interacting with the text. And then there's a place for you on Sunday mornings to take notes. And then there's a place for you, there are questions that are designed to help you discuss what you're learning with others who are also learning so that you can be enriched by what, what God is doing in them and they can be enriched by what God is doing in you. And there's one other piece that we added to this one that I'm really, I would encourage you to engage, and that's the devotional prayer piece. Um, a lot of times we get into Bible studies, we're like, oh, we'll just skip that page. There's, you know. Um, but what it, we picked a psalm that is designed to help you meditate on the same themes that are going to be in the chapter. And, and it's, we would encourage you to do it, man, um, because it's going to be good for you. What it does is that you have to write out a prayer. You read the psalm, you meditate on it, you write out a prayer, and you're like, that just kind of feels weird. That's okay. You can be weird. Um, it's good for you, right? Because what it does is, is man, life, just, life is, is like a 45 record. Are you guys familiar with the old vinyls, right? They just they spin, right? And, and, um, and we want to slow things down right? We want to be on 78, right? We, we want to we slow, because that's when we hear from God. That's, that's when we actually grow. When we're going a million miles an hour, everything's a sound bite, and sound bites don't change your life, right? We don't, we don't just need Twitter quotes. We, we, we need to actually be in the presence of God, and so I would encourage you, just take a little bit of time um, and engage this study, because you'll be blessed as you do. If you haven't picked up a book, make sure you pick one up. Um, we designed those so that they could be in your hands um, over the course of the week to equip you and remind you to engage the Word of God. All right, last week we looked at the first three verses of Jonah 1, uh, in which Jonah did the unthinkable. Jonah is a prophet of God. That means uh, his job description um, is to be God's mouthpiece, to be God's representative, to go where God goes. Uh, and to say what God tells him to say, right? That's, he has been anointed by God to do this thing. And last week what we saw is that Jonah the prophet um, was visited by God and told to go do something, and he arose just like he was told, but he went the opposite direction, right? He was supposed to go to Nineveh, which was 500 miles to the northeast, and he picked a spot on the map that was about 500 miles to the west, and he ran fast and hard away from God. And last week we took a look at this idea that very simply we are Jonah, right? We, we can look at Jonah and shake our head and say, what a dummy, right? Pretending God's not God, as if you could outrun God, as if you could go someplace that God isn't, right? God's not a regional deity. He is the God of heaven and earth. And, and, and so, you know, but, but don't we do the same thing, right? When, when God's will doesn't look attractive to us, when, when, God, when God calls us to make a choice we don't want to make or have a conversation we don't want to have, to forgive somebody we don't want to forgive or to confront somebody we don't want to confront, when God wants us to hold a conviction that is inconvenient for us to hold because it conflicts with our cultural perceptions, when, when the Word of God challenges us in some way, are we not tempted, like Jonah, to see God's grace as ugly, His path as ugly, and to choose the more attractive path, which is our own? right? To, to, to decide, I know what's best. I know how to get to life. I know how to find security. I know how to find joy. And, and we often, like Jonah, pretend that God's not God. Now, that's not going to turn out really well for him. That's what we're going to be looking at today. Um, God's going to pursue him, um, but it's not going to be a gentle pursuit. So we're going to read all of chapter one. I want you to follow along as I read aloud. I am going to go ahead and read the first three verses again, just for context. You can follow along. All right, starting in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh 
that great city and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose and to flee to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you guys, last week we took a look at what we do when God's grace seems ugly, when God's will for us just doesn't seem like it leads to life, right? Whatever it is God's asking us to do or to think or to believe or to have, hold as a conviction or to say, or, right? it just seems like it goes through the path of death instead of the path of life. What do we do when, when God's grace feels ugly? We often run. This week, um, we're taking a look at God's pursuing grace, right? When God decides He's not going to let us get away. Um, so Jonah runs. And God runs him down, right? But he doesn't show up uh, with a still, quiet voice, right? Sometimes he does that. Sometimes God's nice and gentle, you know, tapping us on the shoulder, saying, hey, don't you want a hug? Come on, man, let me give you a hug, big bear hug, right? Sometimes he invites us to the table of grace. He's like, come and sit with me and share a meal with me, be loved by me, be once again awakened to my presence. God sometimes shows up with a gentle whisper, and sometimes God shows up kicking in the door. Sometimes he's gentle and sometimes he's not. He responds in a way that's perfectly appropriate, and in this case, he shows up with a storm, and not just any storm, but a storm of epic proportions. Verse 4, it says, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. It's a really graphic image of God like like just violently throwing this wind after Jonah. When I was a freshman in college, I had a uh, professor who I think secretly liked it when people fell asleep in his class. 
And in my class, there was a guy who always satisfied his need. Um, he always fell asleep. There was a dude in the back. Like, I could count on it. Like, every, every week, he would fall asleep back there. And what, this, what the teacher would do is, when he saw he was asleep, this was back in the day of chalkboards, he would grab one of the big erasers, and he would just hurl it across the room, against the wall, next to the guy's head. It would startle him. He would awake, surrounded by the cloud dust of all the chalk, and he, you know, disoriented. It was violent. It was sudden. It took all of us by surprise and then left us giggling, uh, except that guy, right? In this case, it's not funny. God hurls a wind across the sea. It is sudden. It is violent. It is so violent that it raises up, our verse tells us, a mighty tempest. The waves respond to the wind and start just raging. So much so, the end of the verse tells us, that the ship threatens to break up. Now, the author is using a, a, a stylistic device called personification here, which means that he is giving the ship human characteristics. It's like the ship is speaking, right? Now, obviously, the ship is an inanimate object, but in this case, it is, it is, it is threatening to break up. The ship is the first one in the story to understand the extremity of the situation, and it threatens to break up. The, the Hebrew word for threaten here. Uh, means to think or meditate internally or to express something externally, right? So, so it's as if the ship is, is looking and meditating on the storm. And, 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 and it's thinking, uh, you know what? I think my best bet is to disintegrate. And so it is threatening the sailors. It is letting the sailors know. How? Well, think about it. The sailors are attuned to their environment. These are Phoenician sailors. These guys, these guys are the ones that are the explorers of the sea. These, these guys are not uh, rookies or novices out on the water. They are used to watching the clouds, paying attention to the wind, listening to the waves, and listening to the ship. And in this case, the ship, uh, you know, there's get this sudden wind rising and the waves, and, and, and the ship starts threatening. So picture it. All of a sudden, the starry, starry sky is blotted out by the darkness of clouds. You're I don't know if you've ever been out on the sea at night. It's a beautiful thing until it's not, and then it's terrifying. The, the sudden wind and, 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 and the rain coming down that is, that, is, that, is, that, is, that is such force that it's pelting you in the face, right? And, and, and then the ship, the planks start creaking. The timbers start twisting. It's as if the ship is saying, hey, y'all, you better be paying attention or I'm done, right? I'm giving up the ghost on this one. Uh, this one's too big. Right? So the first one to notice the extremity of the storm is the ship. The second group to respond to the Lord's uh, storm are the sailors. Right In verse 5, it says, Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Um, they are afraid. And so they each cry out to their God. Now in the ancient world, um, the Hebrews, the Israelites, were unique because they were monotheistic. That means that they worshipped one God, the one true God, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who is above all other gods, right? Every other area was polytheistic. They had multiple gods, regional gods. So you might have, have a god of a region or even multiple gods in that region, gods over, over the harvest, gods over fertility, gods over the weather, right? And, and so each one arises and starts crying out to their god, the one that they had been looking to previously 
generously to, to bring them blessing or some measure of protection. But they're not doing it with a whole lot of confidence because regional gods have a regional reach. They, they don't expect that their gods' arms are long enough to actually reach out and do something for them on the sea. But, but, but they're terrified, and so they do the only thing they know to do, which is to cry out for help. Now, again, these are experienced sailors. These are guys that are, that are very aware of, of what a storm is like. They know how to weather a storm. The fact that they are crying out to God indicates to us that this isn't the weatherman pretending that the wind is strong on TV to, to be more dramatic, right? This guy, uh, they, they know the extremity, and it's produced within them a terror that leads them to pray and, in fact, causes them to start throwing cargo over the ship. And you're like, what's the big deal? Well, that's, you know, they've been paid to transport cargo from one spot to another. <laughs> they're they they taking their profit and throwing it away. And they're not just taking their profit and throwing away, they're, they're potentially ruining their business because they're accountable for the cargo that's been entrusted to them. Not only do they not get the profit from the shipment, but they take the loss of the cargo. Why are they doing it then? Well, because when they throw the cargo out of the ship, what it does is it raises the hull of the ship. What that tells us is that the waves had started coming over the, the deck of the ship, and it was threatening to, to swamp them. They wanted to raise the hull enough that the waves weren't, you know, when they were up there, the waves weren't coming over and swamping the ship. That's how intense the storm suddenly became. So in contrast to the ship, which is threatening to disintegrate, in contrast with the sailors who have decided at this stage there's, they're doing everything to save their lives, there's, there's Jonah, right? Take a look at the end of verse 5. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Jonah was in the spot of greatest danger. He was in the belly of the ship, in the heart of the ship. Um, if you're on the surface and the ship breaks up, you can grab some flotsam and potentially float. And, and um, you know, there's not a lot of hope, but there's at least some. But if you're in the belly of the ship, when that thing collapses, you are dead. What that tells us is that he was in the epicenter of the storm. He was in the place of greatest danger, and yet he was the one least aware of his peril. Now, we don't want to mix this up with the boldness of faith. Right? There are times when there is a boldness that, that we have that comes because we know our God is greater than our storm, right? And it allows us to, to have courage and calmness in the midst of, of turmoil, right? It comforts us. That's not what's going on here. This is not the boldness of faith. This is the numbness of rebellion. And, and you guys, this is an incredibly dangerous stage that occurs in our hearts when we decide to run from God. When we decide that, that, that um, our way is, is better than His, right? When, when, when we choose to run. Um, you guys know what the word decide means, right? Right? It means to choose. But I don't know if you've ever really thought about the, the makeup of the word decide. It actually comes from the same root that we get homicide, right? Homicide is to kill a human. Decide means to kill an option, right? That's why some of you can never make decisions because you're such humanitarians, you can't dare put to death any other options, right? Where do you want to go to lunch? I don't know. They all look good, right? Well, pick one. I can't, right? And in the end, it feels like you're dying yourself because when you have to decide, something has to die, right? When you choose one, you put to death all the other options. Literally, it means to cut it away. When we choose 
when we are confronted with God's way and our way, when we're looking at, man, God wants me to do this, but I don't want to do it. God wants me to say this, but I don't want to say it. God wants me to believe this, but I don't want to believe it. God wants me to do this thing, to go this way, to hold this conviction, and I don't want it. Right? When you're in that place, that's a place of tremendous tension, isn't it? Have you ever wrestled deeply with the will of God in an area of your life? If you're a follower of Christ, I'm guessing you have. There has been some point where God wanted you to do something you didn't want to do. God wanted you to believe something you didn't want to believe because it was inconvenient or or it conflicted with your cultural values. God wanted you to, to forgive someone you didn't want to forgive. God wanted you to confront someone you didn't want to confront. God wanted you to do something, to believe something, to move somewhere in a way you did not want to follow. And you wrestled because you had your will and you knew God's will. That's a place of tremendous tension. And when we're there, man, it feels, we feel anxiety. We feel tension. We feel, we feel conflict. And in the end, we feel exhaustion. Because it feels like we are wrestling with a force that we cannot overcome. And God's way looks ugly and, and we just don't want to go. And when you decide to go your own way, when you put to death God's call in your life, basically saying, I choose my way. I choose my conviction. I choose my belief. I choose my will over God's. When you make that decision, there is a cathartic release. There's an emotional release that can happen in your heart where suddenly all the conflict is gone, all the tension is gone, all the anxiety is gone, and it can actually feel like freedom. It can feel good. To quote the great theologian Jeff Bridges, who was playing a country music... Do you love it when I laugh at my own jokes? You guys are like, what? Um, He was playing a a country music singer in Crazy Heart, okay? And in this movie, he's playing this country singer, and and, and he sings this song. And it begins, you know, I'm doing what I... Oh, what, I, what I shouldn't do, going where I shouldn't go, being who I shouldn't be. So he's setting up this conflict, this exact thing we're talking about, right? He, he's doing what he shouldn't do, going where he shouldn't go, being what he shouldn't be. And then the chorus comes in, and the chorus says, Funny how fallen feels like flying for a little while. Funny how fallen feels like flying for a little while. So in that sense, it was actually a very theological movie because that is actually very true to what we're describing, right? Jonah, listen, Jonah's at peace. Jonah's at peace in the midst of the storm. He is asleep in the heart of the ship. But it is a false peace. It's not rooted in reality. The peace he feels is based on his self-deception. That God's not God. That he knows better. That his wisdom is greater, his strength is greater, his direction is better, that he is moving himself actually toward life. It is, it is a lie. He is in tremendous danger and completely insensitive to his peril. And, and so much so that the sailors, when they see him in the state, man, they're shocked. Right? Verse 6, so the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? You know, Steve's version of that. Are you an idiot? Like, he's down there looking for more cargo to throw over the side, and here's Jonas. Like, come on, you idiot. Like, do you not know the danger we're in? Do you not hear the, the ship threatening? Do you not feel the waves raging? Call out to your God. 
Maybe he'll save us. What's fascinating is you have a, an unbelieving sailor, a Phoenician pagan, who calls a Hebrew prophet, Arise. The very same command God gave Jonah in the beginning. Arise and go to Nineveh. Now we have an unbeliever. Look at him. Arise and call out to your God. You have an unbeliever who's basically calling the prophet to be a prophet. He is, in a sense, becoming the mouthpiece of God. Arise and call out to your God. There's a deep irony here. In fact, irony is one of the main tools the author of Jonah uses to create a tension that helps us discover the genuine message of what's happening, the tension between who Jonah is and who he should be, what he does and what he should have done, and ultimately who, 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 what Jonah deserves and what Jonah ends up getting. Um, that irony is very, very rich. And it's throughout the book. In fact, the word fear in this chapter is a great example. The Hebrew word for fear can be translated as fear or awe. The word can be translated as terror or worship. And you're like, how can the same word be translated as both of those things? Because there's like totally two different things. How can the same word be both fear and awe, terror and worship? And if you think about it, the reality is fear and worship really aren't that far, far apart. They both result from an experience in which there has been an undoing of my strength, like I am suddenly and, and uncomfortably aware that I'm weak in the face of some great strength. I am small in the face of some great thing. I, there is, a, there is a, a sudden awareness of my limitations and in the sense that it also comes with a sudden vulnerability of my soul. I can't, that's what happened to the sailors, right? These are competent sailors who suddenly the storm springs up and their strength is limited, their wisdom. They know they are not, uh, they can't handle the storm that has risen. And, and, and so it awakens within them a vulnerability of their soul that awakens within them a, a terror, right? It is an undoing of my strength and a vulnerability of my soul. Now, the fear, the word can be translated terror, but it can also be translated worship. Because think about when, when you have that sudden sense of awareness, of limitation. You have that sudden sense of vulnerability. But along with it comes a sudden sense that you're loved by the God who's over the storm. That you are both vulnerable and loved. You can't protect yourself, but you're still protected. That there is one who is greater. That's what produces awe. That's what produces worship. When we are suddenly aware of our limitations and vulnerability and simultaneously aware we are loved by the God who is greater. Right? That's how terror and worship are very, very similar. They both arise. The difference is one focuses on my limitations and the other focuses on God's sufficiency, right? And so the, the sailors are struck. This word is used four times in this chapter, and it's, it, it, it is really instructive. In verse 5, it's the first use of this word. It says that the mariners were afraid. They were the first ones, right? After they heard the ship complaining, they were afraid of the storm. They had this deep sense of vulnerability, the next two uses of this word are found in verses 7 through 10. Take a look at this. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots. That was a, a, an old-fashioned way of making decisions. They would have two colored uh, pieces of stone or wood 
They'd be dark on one side, light on the other, and they would cast them. And if they were both dark, it meant no. And if they were both light, it meant yes. And, and if it was dark and light, it meant got to do it again, right? And you're like, man, that's such a crude way of making decisions. They were so primitive. Yeah, that's the same thing you do every time you flip a coin, right? When you're going out to, where do you want to eat? I don't know, flip a coin, right? It's our way of saying, uh, I, I don't know how to make the decision, right? Um, and here's the thing, God's even in control of that. There's a proverb that says that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord, right? And so what we find is, is look at the rest of the verse. They, they come and cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. No surprise. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come to us. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? Like they're like drilling him. Like, why is this calamity coming upon us? Verse 9, and he said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. Notice the word Lord there is all uppercase. L-O-R-D. They're all uppercase. What that means is that in the Hebrew, this is actually God's name. It's Yahweh right? Sometimes pronounced Jehovah. It's four Hebrew letters, and so we have to fill in our own vowels, and, and so you pronounce it different ways. We're not sure because the ancient Israelites held this name in such high regard, they, they would almost never speak it. They would write it but not say it because they had so much reverence, right? And he says, like, I am the fear, I, I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, not the regional God, not the God of this or the God of that. He is the one who made both the sea and the dry land. He's over it all. What's ironic is that he identifies himself as one who fears the Lord, and yet there's nothing in his behavior that indicates that he does, right? By culture, he fears the Lord. He was, he was born an Israelite. They are a people in covenant relationship with God. God has covenanted to love them, and they have covenanted to fear and worship him, right? He is, he, it's his job description. He's a prophet, right? If you look at his resume, it's like job description, fear the Lord, right? So it's on his resume, but it's not in his heart. The irony that, that he is one who is, is by culture, by people, by profession, and by occupation, one who fears the Lord, and yet it's the last thing he's doing. Followers of Christ, does not this often describe us? We call ourselves followers of Christ, and yet we so resist following. We say that we believe the gospel, and yet we often find ourselves walking in disbelief of the very gospel we claim to follow. We, we say we believe in Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth, the maker of all things, the one who has redeemed and restored and is in the process of redeeming and storing the entire world. And yet we find ourselves doubting and mistrusting and falling short. Jonah calls us once again to identify with him because of his lack of fear. But look what the, the sailors do in verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, Yahweh, because he had told them. The men were exceedingly afraid. Jonah didn't have the appropriate fear of God, but they did. They, Jonah did not have the appropriate awe of God's presence, but, but they were being awakened to it. The irony, again, that unbelieving sailors, Phoenician pagans, are schooling the, uh, the Hebrew prophet. Now, it is interesting that, that there seems to be an awakening here of some form of humility. When they come to him and they say, what have you done? What have you done? And finally, he's like, look, all right, all right. Man, I'm a prophet. I'm running, right? Uh, this, is, this is on account 
of me. But it's not humility. And we know that because he doesn't call on God and he doesn't run to God. The flip side of pride is always shame. What begins as insensitivity born out of our pride will finally give birth to a paralysis of shame where, where we don't think we need God because we're totally in control moves to a place where we think we don't deserve God because we're covered in the shame of our, our failure and we become paralyzed in it. Take a look at how this continues to develop in verse 11. And they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? I love how polite they are, right? The tempest is raging. The wind is still blowing. The waves are, and they're like, sir, what should we do? You know, I've met a lot of sailors. Most of them aren't this polite. These guys are the model, right? They not only respect God, but they respect Jonah, uh, someone created in the image of God, right? They are modeling what Jonah should be and isn't. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Notice he doesn't hurl himself. Why? The paralysis of shame. At this point, he realizes, I did this. It's all because of me. And instead of actually taking steps toward God or taking steps of accountability or moving toward genuine repentance, he instead curls up in the fetal position in a quarter, feeling sorry for himself, which is what shame always leaves us doing. Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know that because of me this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. Notice the honorability. They're like, okay, if we have to hurl you out, at least maybe we can do it on the shore. But God won't let them. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. Now notice who they're talking to now. They're not praying to their localized deities. They're praying to Yahweh. Oh, Yahweh, oh, Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us the innocent blood for you, oh, Lord, oh, Yahweh, you have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. God hurled the storm. They hurled Jonah in response. And the sea ceased from its raging. And the men feared the Lord. It's the final use of that word. Notice how different it is. Now they're not terrified. They're filled with awe. The men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Jonah refused to be a prophet. He refused to give the message of God, so God made him the message. You know what's awesome about God is he always gets his way. He will always do what he's determined to do, and sometimes that results in our blessing, and sometimes that results in our suffering, but God will get his glory, and and in the end, we will get our blessing. God will not be thwarted even by our rebellion. And so what we see is Jonah refusing to be a prophet of God and God saying, look, I'm still going to use you as a prophet. You're just not going to enjoy it, right? I'm, I'm still going to get what I want. You're just not going to like the process, right? And so, so we see the sailors actually responding um, to this, this very reluctant prophet um, realizing now that he can't get away. Uh, let's go ahead and read verse 17 again because I know you're really worried about Jonah. Let me just Settle that. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. All right, so there was just a great fish hanging out. Why not um, swallow Jonah up? And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. We'll talk about that later. All right, we're not going to deal with that today. Um, What I want to do is I want to close us by by talking about um, what do we do with this? All right, this is a fascinating story. It is filled with um, drama and power. um, But what does it mean to us? All right, so let me rephrase the question this way. If we are so much like Jonah that we tend to replicate his actions in our lives, how do we avoid the storms that will destroy our life? 
How do we do that? How do we avoid getting into this spot, right? Um, and in order to answer that question, I want to uh, point you to a different story of a very different figure, a guy named Jesus in the New Testament. In fact, I'm going put it on the screen behind me. It's Matthew chapter 8. And Jesus is in a very similar situation to Jonah's. Let me just read this, and then I want to point some things out. And when Jesus got into the boat, so it was after preaching and sharing the gospel and, and doing all of his work, in the evening he climbed into a boat. Now, this wasn't one of the big Phoenician, you know, we're going to sail across the entire ocean boats. This was one of the smaller sailing vessels, the, the fishing vessels that, the, that the, the disciples had because they were fishermen. So he climbed in. It was the same exact sea, by the way, that Jonah was in. Um, a very, very different time in a, in a smaller boat. And he climbs in. And, um, and the boat was being swamped by the waves. Why? Because there was a great storm that arose on the sea. But Jesus was asleep. So they, the disciples, went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the wind and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now, notice the similarities between these two stories, right? Jonah is exhausted from struggling against God. Jesus is, is exhausted from, from living out the mission of God, right? They both go and, and fall asleep in the hull of the ship, um, one from, from, okay, the false peace of, of rebellion, the other from the genuine security of knowing that he's, that he's fulfilling the will of his Father. Both of them end up in a storm that is threatening to swamp the ship. Both of them end up having the, the people they're sailing with come and awake them and basically say the same thing. What are you doing, O sleeper? Right? What, don't you recognize the danger we're in? And, and the one ends up in, 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 the, in, the, in the helpless passivity of shame. And the other rises up, and it's like, don't you guys know who you're sailing with? Oh, you have little faith. All right, all right. Steps out onto the ship. The wind is blowing. The rain is pelting him. The waves are coming over. And he just speaks quietly. And suddenly, the sea calms. And the wind stops blowing, and the rain stops falling, and the clouds part, and there's a beautiful starry sky. And he's like, turns around, heads back down, goes back to sleep. And the disciples are sitting there on the deck, filled with fear, filled with awe. Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? You guys, listen, when the storm comes, and the storm will come, the storm always comes. The storm came for Jonah, and the storm came for Jesus. You, you're not going to be able to live any kind of life where, you know what, you're like, nah, things are, some of you are in the storm right now, and you know it. Some of you, you're like, no, man, things are totally calm, the sea is peaceful, the problem with these storms is that by the time they hit, you generally don't see them coming. There are things unraveling that you don't know are unraveling. There are problems that have already started taking place that you don't know until they're a crisis. And you're like, thanks, Steve, that's really comforting. That's reality, isn't it? Isn't that life? Right? The storm's coming. The question is, where are you going to try to rest in the storm? Where are you going to try to find security in the storm? You're either going to try to rest in your own will or you're going to try to rest in God's. You're going to try to bury yourself in the hull of your own security or you're going to bury yourself in submission in the security of God. And one choice leads to disaster. And one choice 
leads to safety and blessing. So how do we make the right choice? Three things that I just want to wrap up with. First, you need to choose security, true security, over false comfort. You need to choose true security over false comfort. There are two different kinds of peace, right? The first kind of peace that Jonah had was an internal lack of conflict, right? He had all this tension, all this conflict, and then that passed, and he took that peace for security. He took the cathartic release of no longer having to wrestle with um, God's blessing of security. One is in the lack of internal conflict. The other kind of peace comes from humble submission to a power greater than ours. Right? When, when we recognize God's got it. I'm in the storm, but there's a God greater than the storm, right? Because the storm will come. The question is, where are you going to be resting when it hits? Where, where in your plan or God's, in your wisdom or in God's, in, in your, in your um, beliefs or in, or in what God... Listen, we are like Jonah, and like Jonah, we are all in danger of saying we're followers of Christ without following Christ. We're all in danger of saying that we believe in the gospel without walking in the daily reality of trust in, in the God of the gospel. Right? Instead, we, we have a tendency to walk in the errant, arrogant disregard of his authority and, and of his power. And you guys, I've seen this play out in devastating ways. Like I am, abs- as I was writing this, I am like, this is, I have sat across too many people where I was literally pleading with them. At times in tears, pleading with them. Do you not see that it's all getting ready to be destroyed. You're going to lose it all. Your false sense of security, man, it's going to come crushing down on you. You are going to lose your wife. You are going to lose your family. You are going to lose your career. I have seen guys lose their reputation like that. And yet in that moment, as I'm pleading with them, they're looking at me as if I'm the problem. They're looking at me as if, as if I would just stop complaining, everything would be fine because, because they've got it. They're in that, that place of, of, of false comfort while they're still in the heart of danger. Listen to me. Don't mistake internal peace for a sign of God's blessing when you are disobeying God. I've had people look across at me and say, look, man, I was struggling with this, and I really think this is God's will for me. Well, why do you say that? Because I'm at peace with it. Yeah, but I can show you right here. It's not God's will. Yeah, but I just have peace. Don't mistake internal peace for God's blessing. When you are walking in rebellion to God, when you are choosing to disobey God, God's word trumps your feelings every time. God's word tells you the truth. Your feelings are liars. You can't simply do what feels right. You can't simply go whatever floats your boat. You can't, or you will end up destroying yourself and hurting those that you think you love. Do not mistake internal peace for a sign of God's blessing. Don't climb down into the inner darkness of your rebellion and go to sleep in the numbness of your rebellion because the ship will break. Secondly, choose faith instead of fear. Choose faith instead of fear. 
Jonah was lit up by fear. God shows up and says, I want you to go to Nineveh. He's afraid of the Assyrians. He is afraid of how the Assyrians will respond to the preaching, uh, that, that, that God's judgment is near. He's afraid of what God will do. And, and I think this is really what Jonah's afraid of. Jonah's afraid that he won't be in control of the outcome. And he desperately wants to control the outcome. He, he's not just afraid of following God. He's afraid that if he follows God, things might happen that he doesn't want to have happen that there might be consequences he can't control that come out of it, and he needs to control. And so in his need to control, he tries to run from God and create a situation in which he remains in control. He chooses fear instead of faith, and in his fear, he creates a false reality that, that jeopardizes genuine security. Listen, when God's grace doesn't look safe, when God asks you to do what you don't want to do, when His will is unpleasant, when God's grace is ugly, we must choose faith. How do we do that? Well, faith, faith, faith is a trust response to the love of God. That's what faith is. Faith is when I sense a love from God and in response I trust. Right? God initiates toward me in love and I respond to Him in trust. That, that is faith. And true faith, when we respond and trust to God, overrules our emotional responses. It is at times an act of the will in which we choose to do what we know God wants us to do, even though everything in us is raging that it is wrong, that the cost is too high, that the damage will hurt. That, that, that control will be lost, that, that reputation will be tarnished, that someone won't like me or someone will be hurt or, or something bad will occur. There are times God asks you to walk into death because there is resurrection on the other side. And it is only faith that will bolster your will to follow where you don't want to go when everything in you is raging. Protect yourself. Trust yourself. Go your own way. Fear comes when we feel exposed and vulnerable and out of control. Faith comes when we feel vulnerable and exposed and loved by the God who's in control. Instead of focusing on our limitations and our lack of strength in the midst of the storm, we focus on the God who is over the storm. Listen to me, Jesus modeled this better than anyone. Jesus walked a harder path than anyone has ever walked. A harder path than Jonah, a harder path than you. Jesus lived the life we should have lived and then died the death we deserve to die. And in the whole way, he was on mission from his Father and lived out the, the, the will of his Father. And you're like, yeah, but Jesus, man, he didn't struggle, really? Have you read the Gospels? Jesus struggled deeply. And it came to a culmination in the Garden of Gethsemane when, when he prayed to his father, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, if there's any other way to accomplish what you want to accomplish, is there, if there's any other path I can walk, any other thing I can do, let this cup pass from me. And he's praying with such intensity. The capillaries in his scalp are bursting and the sweat that is coming down from his brow is like blood dripping to the ground. You want to tell me there's not an intensity of his struggle to follow God's will, 
Jesus wrestled with his Father's will in a way we will never understand. But he trusted his Father in ways we can't comprehend. His fear was swallowed by his faith, while Jonah was swallowed by a fish. His faith trumped his fear, and he moved forward in obedience, even though the path took him straight to death. And that leads me to the final point. Trust Jesus more than Jonah. Trust the one who went through the storm, not the one who ran from it. What does that mean? (laughs) Well, in this case, you're Jonah, right? You need to trust God more than you trust yourself. Like literally, you need to trust God more than you trust yourself. Who's more trustworthy? (laughs) Jesus went through the storm for you. He drank that cup because it was his Father's will and because it was a supreme act of love. He loved you enough to die the death you deserve to die so that when he rose again, he might invite you into the resurrection of life, the the redemption and the restoration of all things. He's not going to ask you to go anywhere he hasn't already been. He's not going to ask you to do anything he hasn't already done. He's not going to ask you to experience anything he hasn't already experienced. There is no dark place you can go that he doesn't go with you because he's already been there. He's already gone through death and blown out the other side. He will never ask you to go through a storm in which he himself is not also with you in the storm. Are you going to trust him? Are you going to trust yourself? How often are you tempted to set aside your most basic convictions to attain just the littlest comfort? How often are you willing to to compromise not just what you believe, but compromise the trust of people who believe in you and are depending on you just so that you could have a little more comfort or a little bit more control or, or, or things will be a little bit easier or maybe a little bit, a little bit more, more enjoyable? How, how often do you deceive others? How often do you deceive yourself? Are you, seriously, are you going to trust yourself more than you trust God? You're not trustworthy. You need to trust Jesus more than you trust Jonah. You need to trust Jesus more than you trust yourself. God's will for you, as hard as it may look, is the path to life. Because the path he takes you on, even though at times it takes you through death, will always take you to resurrection. The redemption and the restoration of all things. Steps of faith are often hard steps. God will at times ask you to step into the headwind of your own fear where you are being lashed by your own anxiety. But if God is telling you to go, listen to me, you are safer in the storm with Him than running from it without Him. Because He is trustworthy. He's already weathered the greatest storm. Your faith comes from trusting the God who is over the storm. Not your ability to protect yourself in the midst of it. All right, I'm going to close this in a word of prayer and uh, ask God to awaken within us a responding faith to this invitation of grace. We're going to share communion in a moment. We'll introduce that in a moment. Let me close this in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you that you are a God of steadfast love and faithfulness, that you are a God who loves unconditionally, 
loves ferociously. You are a God who not only will kick down the door to save us from our own self-destruction, you'll actually step into the destruction and suffer in our place that we might be delivered. Lord, you, you love us enough to pay the price of our guilt and to be covered in our shame that we might be redeemed and covered with your glory. Will you awaken within us a deep and profound response of fear, genuine godly fear of worship and trust? Lord, we hate to feel exposed. We hate to feel small. We hate to feel vulnerable. We hate to feel out of control. But the reality is we were never designed to be big enough We were designed to trust the one who is. We were designed to rest in your strength, rest in your glory, rest in your plan, to live for your glory. Lord, we need you. Like Jonah, we are tempted to run. Like Jonah, we are tempted to mistrust. Like Jonah, we want to tell a story for our lives because we think we can tell it better than you. Spirit, will you awaken within us a genuine, humble, trust that you are absolutely trustworthy. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.